Welcome to the Asian Digital Supermovers interview series on Clubhouse, where we speak to experts, founders, and investors about the Asian digital economy and ecosystem every week. Monica, Mushir, and I, Pratish, invite guests for a conversation about building, scaling, and operating businesses in Asia. Follow our club on Twitter. Our handle is AD Supermovers for providing us any feedback and staying updated on interview series, guests, and topics. Shian is an experienced operator and investor. She is a Singapore-based early-stage VC at Hustle Fund. She was most recently VP of Business Operations and CopDev at Nerd Wallet, and growing annual revenue from one million dollars to one hundred and fifty million dollars. Prior to Nerd Wallet, she was an investor at Institutional Venture Partners, a growth-stage venture capital fund with seven billion of committed capital, and Bridgewater Associates. Shian holds a BS in Biochemical Engineering and a BA in Economics from Stanford, as well as an MBA from Harvard Business School. In her own words, she is a mother, wife, enthusiastic reader, and thrower of dinner parties. Welcome, Shian. It's a pleasure to host you. Thank you so much for having me, Monica. Excited to chat this evening. Absolutely. So why don't I just quickly begin by wanting to know that one transition and that journey that took you from being in business development operations into becoming a PM. Tell us a little bit about how this actually happened and what was the transition trigger from business dev to PM. Sure. Actually, I think the first big transition was actually from finance into product. So right before Nerd Wallet, my whole background had been in finance. I started my career at J.P. Morgan. I, I was an investor at, at IBP and, and then at Bridgewater. And I think it's you go to business school, and what was hot then was everyone wanted to be a product manager. It was this, you're a mini CEO. You own a PNL, and I think that was the the first big transition. And I think that a lot of MBAs want to become product managers, and many of them do come from finance or consulting backgrounds. And so, some of the biggest <clears throat> learnings, I think, really are around how to manage a team that's actually quite different from you. I think when you come up in professional services or financial services, you end up working with people who are actually quite similar to you. They're just like slightly more senior or more junior versions of yourself. Whereas, I think when you're running a product team, you're really this glue, this center of a team that is engineers, designers, marketers, customer support. The whole gamut, and it's actually quite a much wider range of personalities, motivations, and backgrounds. And it takes a while to figure out how all those pieces fit together. And I think the other thing is that, at least for me, coming from finance, it's one thing to really build a model about how growth happens in a company or in a product, and it's obviously much, much harder <laughs> to actually design and ship a product that delivers the growth that shows up in a model as just dragging Excel. Numbers to the right on a model, and I think I had gone to business school wanting to have a more substantive business education, and then looking for something that was more operational. I got my opportunity with Nerd Wallet. I joined as employee number ten. The founder was a friend from college, and I didn't. I don't think I really knew what I was signing up for. <laughs> He's like, "You should come work with me," and I was like, "What do you do again?" He's like, "I've got this startup." And we're gonna change how personal finance works. And I was like, okay, personal finance—something I can get behind. And I said, what would I do? He's like, what do you want to do? There's so much to do. And I was like, would you let me be a product manager? And he's, like, you want to manage engineers? I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I don't mean I had no idea what I wanted to do. He's like, sure. He's, like, you could do whatever you want. And so 
yeah, I walked into it saying it's going to be a new experience. It's going to be a whole set of things that I haven't really had the opportunity to do before, but I felt like I could take a bet on myself and, and figure it out. And that kind of was the beginning of this six-year journey with NerdWallet, where in the early years, product teams that were mostly outsourced teams in Vietnam. And then after we raised our first venture money in 2015 and finally were able to hire Bay Area engineers, I ran in-house product teams. And in my last couple of years at NerdWallet, I transitioned to business operations and corporate development and ran that team for about a couple of years. So it's convoluted and not a straight line at all, but I'm happy to chat on any aspect of that, Monica. That is absolutely the most wonderful story I've heard. The reason is because normally a straight line story wouldn't actually make for amazing listening. But this one certainly did. So let me actually ask you, coming from a business background and of course from finance, working with numbers all day, what were some of the transferable skills that you really feel helped you to become an excellent PM and be able to manage a team which was very far away in terms of being able to work with them and being able to be effective as a PM in your uh, role at Nord? wallet. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think having an affinity for numbers is leads you to think of things as a system of numbers that connect, right? Inputs leading to some certain set of outputs. And I think products are like that, right? Whether you're putting um, marketing spend to generate traffic, which then you convert into some sort of transactions or retention or some sort of actions. I think being able to model out the impact of what you're shipping is really important. But I wouldn't say that I was good at being a PM out of the gate. Like I had no idea what I was doing. And managing a remote team is actually really hard, especially if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> but I think when you haven't grown up in a product environment, you, I think, have this mistaken notion that you're like, I had this idea, I'm going to write it down, and someone over there is going to make it for me. And then, you know, of course, you haven't actually fully scoped out all the edge cases. You haven't properly described or understood what the user interactions are like. And some poor engineer, 18 time zones away, is trying to decipher what you wrote, ship something, and it comes back and you're like, what is this? I didn't ask for this. And so I think it was a iterative process of learning, okay, what are things that are reasonably well characterized and understood in the product already that you can use shorthand for versus what are truly novel things that you need to actually be much more descriptive with, whether it's with drawings or with more detailed descriptions of all the different use cases and edge cases. And then also building a relationship with people that they will ask you or that they have enough intuition around what the user is actually like so that when they have to make decisions on their own, they're not making totally random decisions. And also, I think really realizing that the act of developing product is actually like an act of co-creation you know, with your engineering lead, with your design leader, with your user research people. And it isn't a PM like trying to be like coming up with ideas by themselves in a corner. And so... I think the most transferable things coming out of finance are like not being scared of numbers, being reasonably quantitative. I learned how to use SQL, right? So I didn't have to rely on anyone to pull data to figure out what was going on. And I think that's like super useful to not be blocked by having to ask engineers or analytics for numbers. And I think at least, I think they have better working conditions now. Back in the day, I think when you start your career in investment banking, you know, you know that you're just signing up to be punished for two years continuously. And I think that's a good, that's a good sort of understanding for how much you want to put yourself through to really understand like what's going on in your business, what's going on with your tech stack, what really trying to understand the details of what you're doing. I think that's all good preparation for that. But the rest of it, I think I just have to be really thankful to 
my colleagues were putting up with my inexperience and incompetence early on and giving me the time to figure it out and trusting that I would figure it out. Absolutely. And we are very glad that they did. But I must ask you this question because this keeps coming up as a recurring theme for product managers all across, which is, do you really need a technical background to become a great product manager? Is it an enabler or do you think it's an inhibitor? I think there are some products where you do need a technical background, but I think for most things, I don't actually think it's required. I know that there are some companies like Google requires a CS degree that do pride themselves on PMs having much more technical backgrounds. The PM's job isn't to be the engineering lead. I don't think a PM's job is to figure out how to do something. I think that is the engineering leader's job to figure out how to do something. The PM's job is to figure out like what to do. And I think that is more about understanding the customer need, being able to scope it into a user story that makes sense, and then being able to discuss the trade-offs that you're making in product development with your design leader and your engineering leader. So I'm a biomechanical engineer by academic training. Not sure that was like particularly relevant to being a personal finance product manager. And I know many great product managers who don't have a technical background, but that doesn't mean that you're excused from learning the details of your stack. You have to know, you have to make the effort to understand your stack. You have to make the effort to understand why certain things cost more in engineering time or in performance or what you're giving up later on. I think that is your job to figure it out, but you don't, it isn't your job to be able to instruct the engineering team on like how to build. I think that's your engineering partner's job. Absolutely. And that's very relevant. And Shian, this is absolutely assuring to hear as well, because one of the major reasons, and I'm bringing this diversity uh, question very much up it, uh, in focus right now, is the fact that most women, non-engineers who want to have a role, career in product management do feel inhibited by the lack of technical skills to be able to have a fruitful career. And uh, they are full of self-doubt as to whether this is even required. And this is obviously a very assuring answer. Thank you. Quick question related to this because we've talked about the role of engineering in a product organization we know how important it is we also know how difficult it is to work with remote teams how did you actually earn the respect and the trust of the cross-functional team uh, so that they would not only uh, cut you some slack uh, while you were taking up this new role but also be able to respect your decisions and the authority that comes with uh, knowing the subject as well as of course knowing the customer I think trust is something like human beings, we all have a sense of it, which is like, how do you build relationships with people? And how do you have a strong communications cadence? And how do you you know, provide enough interactions with someone that they feel like you have the same goals, even if you might not always seem like you're on the same page. But I think to be clear, in the early days, like it was a bit of a different setup. We had an outsource team in Vietnam. So they technically were like service providers. And they wanted to work with us. It's just that we needed to do a better job of being able to communicate to them what we actually wanted to get done. So we actually sent our VP engineering to Vietnam for a month. He got them set up on our stack and we were able to create a cadence of understanding and check-ins and stand-ups, sprint planning, all that kind of good stuff that helped us build that over time. And we worked with that team actually for two and a half, three years. 
So it wasn't like a one-off project and we were running multiple scrum teams with that dev shop. I think this question, like how to build trust and credibility, I think it's just a very human question, right? It's not a product management question. It's, it's like you walk into any situation with a bunch of strangers and you need to get a goal accomplished together. Like how do you tell people, like, mm-hmm. how do you give them confidence that you're like a good person? Well, you have to communicate openly, authentically, right? You have to show vulnerability and you have to be like, I think, somewhat predictable. If you act crazy, people don't trust you at all. Absolutely. Actually, Shan, we get a lot of questions from engineering folks who join us and actually we run some clubs, some rooms on product management. I remember this question that quite a promising engineer asked. He said, why should I trust you? You're a product manager. I'm doing all the coding. Why should I trust your decisions when I can do it better myself? So I think the reverberating message around the room at that point in time was that product manager's job is not really to uh, figure out the how, it is to know and be the master of the what. And that's what we try to explain. But the recurring theme again seems to be the fact that when product uh, managers do not uh, understand technology or do not come from a technical background, they can be mistaken for somebody who really is uh, not equipped enough to be able to handle engineering and the cross-functional team. And so maybe I should have context realize that a little better but totally agree with you that this kind of goes with every single job and uh, communication is probably the not only the key it's it's the key to mastering these kind of relationships totally agree thank you so much i've opened up hand raising so if anybody in the audience wants to ask a question please do raise your hands we'll bring you up and we'll make sure that you are able to not only address the question to shian but you'll come in the same order in which i'd pull you up and uh, we will be able to give you some face time with shian so we have a few hands being pulled up also if you don't have anything in your bio i'm afraid i will not be able to pull you up so if you are interested in asking a question please do at least tell us a little bit about yourself and what current work or employment you are in so that it becomes easy and we are able to do the right thing for the entire room. Now, coming to the next question, Xian, this is probably related to the frequent career transitions and, of course, the uncertainty which comes with working in startups where change is constant. Do you do self-audits? How do you really measure your own success? And specifically in a PM role, what kind of success metrics do you set for yourself to know whether you're doing well, doing better than excellent, or you need to improve in certain areas? What would be your advice? That's a tough one. I think ultimately for me, I'm always trying to ask this question, am I delivering what I need to for the business? And when I left my product role to do business operations, that was what motivated that was that this was what the company needed at the time. And I was well positioned to do it. Not that it was necessarily the most fun job. (laughs) Um, So I think there's just ultimately like when you're in a startup thinking about What's the business impact that I'm having and am I delivering against that is like number one. And then number two is if you feel like you're falling short in some way or you feel like you're not firing on all cylinders is to think about what aspect of the role do I feel like I'm strong at versus where do I think that I could really improve more. And I think then like 360 is getting feedback from your engineering partners, your design partners and whatnot. I think that can be super valuable to give you data around where you can grow. And so I think early in your career, it's much more tactical, right? Like how do you actually just acquire the tools of product management? And then I think as you grow more senior and you become a manager of product managers, then it's much more of scale, people management, goal setting alignment, things like that. And so I think the important things there around 
getting honest feedback from people and taking the time to think about quarterly or, or whatever cadence you have, how you're tracking against the things where you feel like you need to get more depth. Thank you so much, Ian. And last question on just this piece and before we dive into the next segment is associated with outcomes versus activity. Do you feel that PMs spend way too much time on uh, rating themselves against the activity that they are involved with versus actually measuring themselves against outcomes and obviously measurable business impact? And how do we really prioritize and be strategically focused on the outcomes more than activity? What has worked for you? I feel like for startups, there's always like a hundred things you could be doing, but maybe only two or three things are truly existential. If we nail these things, this business will be successful. And so I think the key thing when you're prioritizing or when you're auditing your time is to say, if I, like, if I do this thing, what number is going to move? And why does that matter? And I think that requires you to actually stop doing some things, which can feel very uncomfortable. Because you want to look like you're busy, that you're working really hard. But if you really think that only two or three things are existential to the business, then I think being able to say, hey, I don't think this thing matters, and I actually want to spend whatever residual time I have just trying to push these one or two levers, I think you're going to get better results with that. But I think that can also be hard to do when you're early in your career, because your boss might be like, hey, do these things. But I think the ability to like really sit and reflect and be like, okay, I know you told me to do these things and I'm trying to understand like how this kind of all plays through, but I actually think I'm going to have a greater impact doing these other things. So yeah, I think that's just, if you look up when you're reflecting in the last three months and you say, you do Italian, okay, what did I do? What did I actually accomplish? And then you try to match that up against your company's annual objectives or your OKRs and say, does this show up anywhere? Does this matter? I think that's like a good way to force the thinking and, and to have that conversation with your manager and broader team. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And Shayan, also, you've worked in very large organizations. You've worked in mid-size. You've worked in even small, like really 10 people organizations. What for you, in terms of difficulty uh, levels, would you see this transition from one side of the corporate setup to the other? And do you feel that PM roles also differ widely based on the size of the business and, of course, the size of the team? Oh, for sure. For sure. In a startup, a PM just has to do way more, and just fewer things have been abstracted away. So the larger the organization, the more things have been abstracted away and handled by someone else. And so then your role becomes much more narrow, much more specialized, right? So you can go from being the PM of a product to being the PM of a feature to being the PM of a page, depending on the size of your organization. And so I think the huge different kind of like the level of scope and what you need to do and just because you're really good at the PM of one feature doesn't necessarily mean that you have the experience to jump up and then run a product. You probably have good fundamentals in place, but you still need to throw yourself in the deep end to really get that experience. I think the biggest difference from going from big company to startup is literally that, is you just need to not expect to have all your resources. And you need to think about what is the 80-20 in every scenario because you're, you don't have the luxury of doing 100%. So it does force, back to your earlier question, Monica, just like really ruthless prioritization about what you're doing every day, because you just don't have the resources to draw upon. 
absolutely and chian if you look back at that journey and the transition from from finance or business development into product would you say that the skills that you had acquired in business school really helped and if it did then what would be the three transferable skills that you would identify as the must haves for product managers is it worth getting an mba is that the question i think the most useful thing about business school was actually learning about lots of different businesses because it gave you a lot of mental models to think about the world and to think about business. So as you looked at products, it gave you many different lenses to to view a decision against. In terms of transferable skills into product, I think probably communication is probably number 1, really important. I think the second is as a lot Shian, is it just me or is anybody else having also trouble hearing? Likewise, Shian, we lost you for the last uh, minute. I mean, what necessary? Oh, sorry. How's this now? Shian, much better now. Thank you. Can you hear me now, yes, Monica? Yes, we can. Thank you. Oh, sorry, that was weird. Sorry, where did I cut out? You were talking about whether uh, getting an MBA. skills. Yes, but you were talking whether getting an MBA is worth it, and I was laughing and I was trying to get back at you and uh, trying to respond back at the question, and I was on mute, and then you started talking. Okay. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I think the the transferable skills I think are really communications, being organized, just like being able to get things done and being able to track what needs to get done when, and then the last one, which I don't. think necessarily is explicitly emphasized in business school but i do think is really important for product managers is psychology like human psychology because when you make products someone is using it whether it is a consumer or a business user or whatever it is at the end of the day there's a human somewhere who is using your product and understanding the psychology of how people adopt products how they think about product decisions i think all those things are really important to creating amazing products and having that sort of empathy or curiosity about like why people do things i i think is actually what distinguishes like great pms and we don't have to talk about table stakes stuff right you have to work hard all that sort of stuff but i think If you don't have strong communication skills, it's really hard to be a good PM because how do you get everybody on the same page and get them to do stuff? And then if you are not organized and can't stay on top of your stuff, it's really hard for you to get things done. And if you can't get things done, you're useless as a product manager. And then but I think some of the magic is really around truly being able to get in the head of your customer. Absolutely, Shyam. Totally love this discussion. But before we actually take start taking questions on the stage, I'm going to do a quick room reset. Also welcoming Mushir, who is the third co-founder of the Asian Digital Super Movers. Mushir, actually, would you want to do a reset? One second. Hi. So, I'm Mushir. Please wait while we call people up later. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. We are in a conversation thank you, thank you, with. Thank you. Uh, Uh, we are in a conversation with Shian talking about hustling and a transition from finance to product. This is the Asian Digital Supermovers Club. We bring in OG thought leaders, digital leaders, and the founders and investors in the Asian world who will talk about their journeys, about their experiences, as well as the products that and companies they've built. We have opened up hand raising, so please 
feel free to ping and come up and then we will uh, allow you to ask questions for Shian as we go through the process of the room today. As we wait for people to come on stage, besides Vashisht, Shian, I had a, a quick question for you, right? Last year, I was working on a research project which was looking at how fintechs can cater to the women's market. And one of the things we did was we did a survey of over 150 fintechs from across the world and we were reviewing the gender makeup of, of their uh, teams. And what we saw was quite often the skew was... Hey, Mushir, I'm having trouble hearing you. You're cutting in and out for me. Okay. Monica, British, are you able to hear me clearly? Yep. Actually, I can. Shayan, this could be Clubhouse glitching. Previously, I actually was getting a poor connection signal. Maybe we can give it five, six seconds to see if you can still hear Mushir. Shian, so I'll, I'll probably cut to the question very quickly. So when you are looking at product management, how much of it, when, how much does the gender matter when catering to women users specifically? Are we seeing inherent biases that male product managers may have? And do they need to be trained about also incorporating the way that women may be thinking while using a product? It's not necessarily a, a bias that is, uh, what's the right term for it? Is I'm losing my thought there. It's not necessarily a bias that somebody is doing it on purpose, but something that's unconscious bias that they may have. Sorry, Mishir, could you just say that again? Unconscious bias by PMs on, on what dimension? Uh, with regards to when catering to women users versus male users, quite often it's seen that uh, because there's a skew of more male use uh, PMs versus uh, female PMs or female developers, uh, you do end up having unconscious biases in terms of the product build itself, and it doesn't necessarily uh, uh, work well for women as compared to the men. It's an interesting question. I don't think we necessarily would expect that men are have more bias, but as long as that they're spending enough time with customers and watching them, you should be able to solve for that. I think where you might run into it is if your initial product usage skews more male and then you end up studying male users more, then that kind of impacts your roadmap in a disproportionate way. I think it could show up there, but, but it's not something I've necessarily noticed myself. Thank you. Uh, back to you, Monica. Thank you so much. We have Vashish on stage. Hi, Vashish. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and then shoot your question to Shian. Hi, Monica. Hi, everybody. Uh, so I'm Vashish. Uh, I'm an engineer by education per se, but I've been working in finance since my second year of undergrad. I've worked across risk, equity research, private equity, and now I'm working in venture capital. But so coming to my question, I was wondering if I should start transitioning into product. I've been reading up a little bit about the space and trying to understand because one of my end goals is to build a fintech lending SME in India. So what I wanted to actually ask Shriyan was, uh, how did you know that you wanted to transition from fintech to product? And how did you know that you'll actually like product when you actually move from finance to product? I didn't know whether I would like it. I basically just figured I would give it a year. And if 
the company blew up or I sucked at it, I would just go back and get another job. So I, I didn't know that I would like it. How did I know that I wanted to try? I just wanted to feel closer to the things that were being made. I had been in finance for a while, and it made everything just seem really far away um, and very abstract. And I just wanted to try my hand at actually making something myself. And so that's why I decided to make the transition. But, you know, I think like most things, you're just not going to know if you like something until you do it. And you can do research, you can make educated decisions, but until you really try, you're just not going to have any idea. (laughs) Which is maybe not the answer you wanted. She seems to have dropped off. Is she? Are you able to hear us? Vashish, are you speaking on mute? Not sure what's going on. There seems to be a glitch. Okay. I really think there is something (laughs) funny going on in Clubhouse. I cannot see his... uh, We are going to pull up one more person before I go on to my next question. Hi, Gagan. Welcome. Do you have a question for Shian? Hello, hello. Am I audible? Yes, Gagan, you are. Please shoot your question to Shian. Yeah, yes, ma'am. Yeah. For example, I a particular line. Now I'm into this construction industry nowadays. While I was doing on, I was improving my own skills around. I I was fascinated about finance nowadays. Went into markets and started doing all those market stuff and all. So my total interest, you know, shift. My total interest is being pulling me out to that side. So I'm not able to concentrate on my stuff out here. Is like how how to deal with that and how to do that, how to shift that thing. So if I heard your question correctly, you're asking how to transition into finance. No, it's not into finance. I know how to do trying to finance, but thing is. To get into that, or it's just a tram in that phase of small money which I gotten through stock market or crypto, crypto which is pulling me towards that side and living my own construction field. My own core competency is construction, but a little chunk of money which I earned through crypto or stock market then is locked on is pulling me towards deal with this mental state. Oh, I don't know, this might be above my pay grade. Is it okay if we uh, skip this question? Because I'm not sure that this is something that is the context of the conversation sure, either. Sure, 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 so, yeah. Well, Gagan, uh, we can take it up in a different room. But uh, really, we're talking to Shian about her own career transitions and her ability to move into PM so seamlessly. So if you have a question related to that, we would love to have uh, Shian answer it. Otherwise, we'll definitely take it up in another room. Oh, sorry. Okay. I read it wrong. The, the, okay, I'm sorry, ma'am. No worries, no worries, that's fine. No worries. Vashish, are you able to speak now? Yeah, I'm so sorry. I think Clubhouse is just glitching as always. Yeah, yeah, Clubhouse is, there's some problem going on. So anybody who's trying to raise their hands, if you're not able to bring you up, my request will be please to exit the app and try to raise your hand again. After coming back to the app, there seems to be a uh, Clubhouse glitch. Vashish, over to you, please. Yeah, Monica, thank you. Uh, Shiam, I'm so sorry. I wasn't able to hear the second half of your answers. Uh, if you don't mind, could you reiterate what you said? 
Oh gosh, Monica, you're gonna have to help me up. Oh, uh, Vashish, you had asked the question that you want to move from fintech to PM, and how do you know if you would uh, should you make that transition, right? Yes. Uh, how to know if I should make the transition? And the second part of the question was, how did you know that you'll actually like the job before? Oh, actually, right, 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 right. But she yes. and I said that. I yeah, I think I I didn't know that I would like it. Um, yes. So you just have to give it a shot and set yourself a timeline for when you're going to assess how it's going. And I mentally said, I'm going to give myself a year to try it out and see how I feel about it. But in terms of how do you know you're ready to do it, I'll talk to people, think about what you enjoy doing, what you don't enjoy doing, right? There's aspects of the role that might seem sexy from an outsider, but I think when you talk to actual people who've been in the job, they can give you a better sense of the day-to-day. And I think one thing people always maybe miss out a little bit about PM work is that there is a lot of day-to-day execution. I just remember used to ship code on Thursday nights. So we would deploy on Thursday nights. And that just meant you could never really go out on Thursday nights because you didn't know what was going to happen necessarily when you hit ship. And there's a lot of stuff that you might think it's like high level and strategic, but I think there's actually a lot of tactical work that has to be done as a product manager. And so just trying to get a good picture of what the role is before you make the leap. And then give yourself enough time to to settle into it to see whether you really like it or not. Monica, is it okay if I ask a follow-up question on that? Please do, Vashish. And we are able to hear you. So please make the best of this before Clubhouse glitches again. Yes, Monica. Uh, So, Shian, I'm making an assumption here that your role in finance didn't really have a lot of coding element to it. Uh, Am I right about that? Like, my question depends on that. Yes, that's right. So, uh, when you're moving... All Excel. Yeah, so it's all Excel, right? Because of that, product always tends to have a lot of coding or software bent to it. And how do you decide that you're okay with... I know that you don't sit and ship code yourself. I mean, that you don't write code yourself, but I would say a software engineering or a developer mentality involved. Most people who work in product or transition into product in general, of course, I'm making a generalization here, come from the tech side of things and not from the finance side of things. So how did you, I would say, mentally deal with that transition perhaps? I guess I don't really think about it that way. Like I think about it like from finance is one view of business, right? So the finance view of business is like, cash in, cash out. And the product view of business is more the customer facing side, right? Like uh, a customer needs to do X. How do I make a product that allows a customer to do X that then generates revenue? And so I guess to me, it was just fun and interesting to think about the problem in a different way. Like why do some people respond to this landing page and not that landing page? What does it cause someone to like press a button versus not? All those are like product decisions. And I thought those were like interesting problems. I think there is the tactical, okay, how do I actually get this thing shipped? But you trust your engineering leader to make those decisions, right? Like I felt like our job on the product side was more about what do we want customers to be able to do and why does it matter for us as a business to be able to let them do these things? So I don't think 
yes, I did get dragged into conversations about, okay, we could do it this way and it'll ship in two weeks. But the moment we get to how many transactions, you know, an hour, this problem, this solution is not going to work anymore. And then we're going to have to refactor the code and do X, Y, Z, other thing. So there was some element of that, but that was just in service of trying to answer the customer question. Like, why do these people want to do these things? And how do we allow them to do it as quickly and easily as possible? And, and preferably delightfully. So I guess I, I, I think of product as just one aspect of business, which is the sort of broader thing that I'm obsessed with. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Shian. Thank you, Monica. Thank you so much, Vashish, for your question. Anishka, are you able to come up? Okay, probably not. There seems to be a glitch again. But uh, without further ado, let me go to the next part of uh, the segment and uh, what we wanted to uh, talk about previously uh, before all these glitches started. But before I do that, I have a quick reminder to everybody who's just joined us. Uh, we are the Asian Digital Supermovers. And today we are talking to Shian Ko, who is uh, um, the MD at Hustle Fund and an investor. She's transitioned her way from business development, operations, finance, into product and now into being a VC. And we're talking about the second part of this particular transition, which is from product to VC now. So if you have a question for Shian and you wanted to come up to the stage, please do click on the hand raise icon at the bottom right of your screen. Once you do that, we will receive a notification and we'll bring you up. Also, if you haven't followed Asian Digital Supermovers, please do that right away. Please click on the greenhouse icon at the top of your page. So do follow mod the moderators and do follow Shian so that you are able to curate your hallway into the kind of conversations that you like being in and uh, are uh, a part of right now. Now, Shian, coming to the next question, which is about your transition into being a VC. And I know that probably there isn't a defined career path. But what would be the skills which are required? And conversely, what would make a really big misfit for somebody to try and venture into venture capital? Gosh, I think there's lots of different paths into venture capital. And what is a misfit? I think if you are a pessimist, you should not be a VC. I think all great venture investors are at the heart of it optimists. Because most things are going to fail. And it's really easy to pick out, you know, a hundred reasons why something is going to fail. And so if you only do that, you would never invest in anything. So I do think, you know, that's probably the only sort of precondition I could think about is you can't be a pessimist. If you're a pessimist, you should go be a distressed debt investor because then you'll be really good at protecting yourself on downside. So I think that's the only prereq. But there are lots of different paths into VC. What makes for a good VC? I think you have to really have a strong curiosity about why things work the way they do and a little bit of imagination on how things could be if things changed. If that's not an interesting exercise for you, then I think you'll find the practice of venture capital pretty frustrating because I think it's constantly meeting companies and trying to figure out like, do I think this thing could be like big, like really big in 10 years, right? And being a student of the business and the sector to be like, here are all the ways that things have failed in the past. Why shouldn't this thing fail? What, what makes this time different? What makes this team different? What makes this technology different? I think you have to like those questions. Otherwise this job won't be fun. I think some people think that VCs like have to be extroverts. You have to be super social. You have to like networking. 
I don't think that's necessarily true. I think there's many ways to be successful. But I think at the core of it, you do need to be interested in the business of innovation and, and turning innovations into businesses. That is very deep and something that I will take time to process. But you're absolutely right. And Jayan, would you say that it also comes with good experience and obviously uh, having a good intuition to know what can or possibly will work and being able to make that uh, risky judgment call, which um, some people are just totally risk averse and they don't want to do it? Yeah, I think how do you develop intuition, right? You have to like see a lot of stuff and there's like different ways to see stuff. So you can see a lot of stuff because you've done a lot of stuff yourself. Or you can see a lot of stuff because you've studied lots of things. I think there's lots of different paths to getting intuition. And I think I think people make arguments about whether, oh, do operators make better investors? Do non-operators make better investors? You know, all that kind of stuff. And, and I think for every case, there's a counter case. We probably just don't have enough data yet to prove it out. But the core of it is like, hey you looked at a hundred deals in this space attacking the same problem and you're able to pick out the one that's going to win. What are the prerequisites of that? First of all, you need to make sure you go see those hundred deals. So have you figured out how to get the deal flow or have you figured out how to find all these things? Because all these companies are new, right? It's not like Gartner or Forrester has covered them and has told you their names. Like you need to go figure out how to get in front of those guys. And then once you see them, do you ask the right questions? to figure out what's important and what's not. And that also is a process of refining your own criteria or your own interactions. And then even once you've whittled that down, then there's the question of, can you even win the deal? Since capital is a commodity, right? Your dollar is as good as my dollar. So why should you take my dollar? And so what is it that you offer to an entrepreneur that is different from what all these other VCs are offering and it can't just be throwing the highest valued term sheet out there. So I, I think there's lots of different ways. If you think about venture capital as a funnel, right? There's like sourcing, there's picking, there's winning the deal. Then once you win the deal, there's like growing the business and there's exiting. So there's like kind of five steps of the funnel and you have to figure out what's your edge going to be. First of all, like which step do you think you're going to try to build an edge? And then how do you improve that edge over time to really win against your competition? That is absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And it actually makes venture capital not only sound hard, but also shows a path towards understanding what it takes and therefore also knowing if you're a good fit or not such a great fit. Now, coming to an most important question, which kind of transgresses every single uh, boundary of, of job type that is out there, which is successful hiring and hiring the right candidate uh, who fits not only a particular role, but is also a good culture fit. Do you believe that hiring for attitude and being able to train for skill is something that uh, one should uh, be looking at given the paucity of great talent out there? Or how do you actually hire? Oh man, that's really hard. Hiring is really difficult. I think if you are able to do strong early talent identification and talent grooming, that's an edge, regardless of whatever industry or what level you're in. Because it's just it's just like investing. If it's obvious, it's already been priced in. And so you only really get great returns if you found something that wasn't obvious. I think that the ability to train is a luxury that you have when you're larger. 
right? I think on a personal level, you should always aspire to want to help your people grow. But I think as an organizational level, there are different stages of a startup, right? So in the early days, you end up with like more generalists because it's all hands on deck and you're trying to figure stuff out. But when you get to a certain scale, you don't have time for the generalist to derive everything from first principles. You start hiring more experienced people who are specialists and who can stand up programs because they've done it like three times before. And then you grow bigger again. And then that, once again, you have a little bit more institutional breathing room to then hire generalists to train up and build your bench and, and grow all your internal strength and things like that. So I think like the type of person you want to hire does vary by the stage of the company you're in right now. In terms of the types of people you want to hire, I think you interview the people and I think you end up developing a sense for where you've made mistakes because people make hiring mistakes all the time. And sometimes it's not necessarily that you hired a bad person. It's just that they weren't a good fit for the role that you had in mind. And so you have to figure out, is, is this person just like categorically not good or more, more likely is that they're just not right for the role that you have them in? And is there another role in the organization where they could succeed or are they just not going to fit at all? I personally hire for attitude. I hire for curiosity. And I hire for general like team positivity. And I hire for people who want to play long-term games. So that's, I think, my sort of where I've landed on like the types of folks I like to hire. But everyone has their own sort of back pocket frameworks that they use. And oh, one more thing, always do reference checks. <laughs> people sometimes forget to do reference checks. Always do reference checks. Thank you, Shian. This is absolutely critical and what a wonderful way to be able to go into my next set of questions. But uh, I will hand over to Pratish now. Pratish? Thank you, Monica. Thanks, Shian. This has been very interesting. I have two questions. Uh, one from reading your background and the second one from one of your responses. So my first question is related to your experience with Bridgewater. As an institution, it is very unique in the way it works the kind of the environment and the culture it has inculcated from radical transparency to the way people are evaluated and discussions. Do you see that whatever you observed or absorbed has come along with you in your next jobs or opportunities that you have? And the second one, I think you mentioned something very interesting, something to observe that in your finance jobs, most jobs actually, most of the people who are your peers, juniors or seniors are a reflection of you, a more experienced or better you. But in a product management job, there are different kinds of people from different walks of life. So do you think a product management job needs more, needs higher EQ than IQ or doesn't it doesn't matter? Yeah, I think definitely yes and yes. I think we're always, we are a function of the experiences we've had. And I met some of the smartest people I've, I've ever worked with. I, I met at Bridgewater. And I admire the rigor with which they put themselves and everyone who works there through. And the transparency, I think, is, is a real one. You can read Ray on the principles to talk about be able to be dispassionate and take a step back and really assess like the machine of you and the in your life. And is it working the way you thought it was going to work? And I think that's such a really hard thing, right? Humans are really good at fooling themselves and rationalizing things away. And so the ability to step back and be like, hey, hey I screwed up. Or, hey, I'm not good at this thing. I think that is actually a really powerful thing to take away from my experience. 
in terms of EQ versus IQ, I think certain industries are more tolerant of lack of EQ than others. <laughs> I think finance is probably one of them. I think that is changing over time. But yeah, I don't think you get away with that as much in product management because in product management, no one reports to you, right? The engineering leader doesn't report to you. Design leader doesn't report to you. So you only get things done by aligning people. And so I think EQ is hugely important. And IQ obviously is useful. But if people don't like you, it doesn't actually really matter how smart you are. Because that definitely is not going to work as well as people like you being smart and people liking you. And you having some sort of emotional connection to people that don't actually technically need to do anything for you. Thank you. Over to you, Monica. Thank you so much, Bitish. We have Shraddha on the stage now. Shraddha, please go ahead. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and do shoot your question to Shian. Thanks, Monica. Basically, I'm working in the asset management industry. It's been almost... Um, so overall, my finance experience is about eight and a half to nine years. And I'm currently working basically in one of the asset management in the, uh, companies. And I, I just wanted to know, so supposing uh, if we compare this product management versus asset management, is there a difference in the cycle in the sense? Is there a particular work that it operates as or is it more, uh, is the work more spread out in the sense, are they, the tenure of the projects that one is working on, are they more longer term or are, would, would they have a like a tight short term quarterly, monthly uh, uh, kind of a cycle? like it's in the asset management industry? I think it really depends on the type of product you're working on. And so I think for some companies, they might ship weekly if they're running a more agile process. For other companies, if they're doing a more waterfall type of thing, they might do a release once a quarter, once every six months, something like that. So I think it like really depends. Is it like Consumer facing? Is it an app? Is it infrastructure? I don't think I can give you a blanket answer to that. It, it really just depends. Okay, great. Perfect. Thank you so much, Shadha. Now I am going to switch to my last segment. And Shian, I have a very set, exciting set of questions to ask you. These are going to be really quick, rapid fire. But before I do that, I'm going to ask you one very important question, which hasn't uh, been discussed. This is not related to product management in any way, but it's actually about diversity. Now, how do you define diversity and what measures do you ensure uh, that you take given your roles in various organizations? And I know that you're doing also a lot of work for STEM so that diversity has a seat at the board table while making uh, people decisions. The reason I'm asking all this is associated with the fact that women many other genders and now also um, there are uh, specific reasons why not just color but different type of preferences of people needs to be accounted for in in hiring and i don't call it diversity hiring because i don't like the decision the name but i wanted to get your take on this especially because of your involvement these with these various initiatives and what we should be learning uh, from yeah i think this really comes down to like more broadly hiring discipline and I think this goes all the way back to like how do you write the job description I think most job descriptions are like pretty badly written and then most processes hiring processes are like disorganized and so I think one of the ways that you help allow more diversity into the funnel is 
you actually be really clear about what are the skills you need, not making like arbitrary things. I've seen these things where it's like, needs 15 years of iOS experience. And I was like, come on, like how many people have 15 years of iOS experience, right? It's like a very rare thing. And do you really need 15 years of that? And is that the actual skill or competency you need? So I think one is just you have to get the job description and to be really clear about what are the things you're looking for, not just some random set of things that the hiring manager put into a JD. And then once you show up and do a process, like a set of interviews, do you know explicitly what each interviewer is looking for and how does that tie back to your job description? So it isn't just the interviewer shooting the breeze with the candidate and being like, oh, I really like this person. They went to my college. They played my sport. They totally remind me of me. We just keep hiring people who look like me. And training interviewers, being explicit about what each interview is looking for, and then having them write down their impressions before they talk to everyone else so that they can't be influenced by other people. And then when you finally do make the hiring decision, is there an impartial person, usually it's HR in the room, who can then say, okay, I've collected all the reports from the interview circuit. Here's how everyone ranked this candidate on attribute A that we said is important, attribute B, attribute C, so you can have a more dispassionate conversation around it. But this sounds like really basic, and I do think it's like pretty basic hygiene or hiring, but actually a lot of people don't do this. So I think that's where you get a lot of you know, people just hiring their friends or people who look like them, um, and that kind of just perpetuates itself because you don't actually have discipline on the intake process. Shane, this is very basic, but obviously we're not doing it very well, which explains what we are right now facing. And thank you so much for reiterating this and revalidating and reasserting uh, this uh, again for our listeners. Really appreciate that. One last question from an audience member before uh, we close the room. And obviously we proceed to the most exciting segment of our show today. And Sharanya seems to be having problems and she has locked off. But why don't I do this? And uh, I think Clubhouse is seriously glitching and I apologize very much for this kind of experience. We were not expecting this. But before I actually go to the last segment, thank you for every to everyone in the audience who's joined us. Thank you for being patient with all these issues and glitches. We are receiving messages saying that they are not able to come to the stage or they are getting logged off and they have to log back in again. Not really sure what is happening because once you leave the room, then you don't see it on your uh, hallway as well. So there definitely seems to be something going on. I hope that we will be able to uh, resolve, Clubhouse will be able to resolve this. In the meantime, I also wanted to thank my co-moderators Pratish and Mushir for being so patient and obviously helping out in the back end without you I don't think this uh, show would have been possible also of course a very big thank you to Shian who's uh, taking time uh, during her very late evening hours uh, to make this possible for the Asian audience thanks again but Shian I will not let you go before uh, knowing a few uh, personal things about you hopefully in the realm of knowing about you as a person so very quick questions just uh, requires a quick yes or no and uh, okay. will not take more than two minutes okay awesome so uh, do you like working from home or hate it i like it awesome what is a bigger high for you creating a great product in uh, requirement getting massive scale or raking in millions in product revenue oh making a product that people use for sure awesome which of the following have you not tried uh, intermittent fasting, zero inbox, or digital detox? Digital detox. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> Absolutely. I have two children, so that's why I think it's hard. <laughs> like, even if I tried to go away from them, I would feel really, like, bad if my nanny couldn't reach me or something. Yeah, that is true. We are totally dependent on technology. 
the next question books or ott oh books awesome singapore or san francisco oh both that's a hard one they're both <laughs> they're good for different things nice android or ios ios what was your last used emoji god i got to look at that that's probably like the laughing with tears coming out one <laughs> <laughs> got it <laughs> a book you recommend to everyone oh leadership without easy answers that's a great one podcast or clubhouse oh podcast <laughs> you can <laughs> you can listen to podcasts at 2x and it's it doesn't have to be synchronous but clubhouse is really fun too i can't knock it too much awesome and the blog do you use blogs or books to learn i use twitter actually i i feel like i learn a lot on twitter nice and last question what is your most favorite dinner dinner menu item oh sushi that's a winner <laughs> i absolutely love it and i can't even imagine how with all that you do you're able to manage to throw dinner parties i really don't get it but you're absolutely a superwoman and this was probably the most exciting show except for the fact that uh, we had so many technical glitches but i'm so glad we never lost the trail of the conversation and really glad again that you joined us and i'll keep calling ba- uh, you back this time to have a conversation around vc and of course how to uh, select the right companies which pratish or mushir will be able to lead we're doing a lot of rooms on clubhouse on asian digital supermovers with various other disciplines and we haven't even scratched the surface with your experience and your knowledge but i'm very glad that we had this particular conversation so thank you again and have a brilliant uh, evening ahead of you and thanks again to the wonderful people in the audience thank you monica thank you patish and thank you mashir